Hello and welcome to Platforms and Pitfalls. This is the first episode of Season 2. We'll be trying new things. We hope that they're mostly good, and if they're not, please tell us. And we're going to talk about game design today because we think game design is cool and worth talking about. But today, we're also going to be talking a bit about ourselves. So today's episode is an addendum to the first season, talking about various things that have come up in that first season that maybe we didn't get to talk about or that came to us as hindsight. Hindsight is twenty twenty. So we want to talk about our internal process a little bit, because that's something that a few people have been curious about. And I think it's worth sort of clarifying for our own sakes, too. So we look at, in theory, five games every week, every month. Usually, we try and have the vague structure of one of them being classical example of the idea in question, then three variants on that, or three like different takes, and then a sort of off-kilter take, I guess. Something that you think, oh, yeah, if I really squint at it and turn my head sideways, that totally fits, but really wouldn't have. We try, we try. It doesn't always work out that way. No, it doesn't really work that, that way all the time, but it's sort of a general structure. A vague guide for ourselves when we're picking the games as well. We never set out to pick five definitive examples of a game design or game idea or game mechanic. That was never the intent. And so when we do include something or more obviously exclude something from a list, it doesn't tend to be because the five that we have, we think are the best of all time. There's no way we could know that. As much as we have experience in games between us, there are so many games out there. We, both of us just haven't played everything. So it's impossible to know that. And we often do research and try and play a few games that we haven't experienced for the show. It's hard to know if the game is going to be genuinely worth talking about. And our goal is to find the games that are really have something interesting to say about them. Not the best has potential or genuinely just does something well, even if it doesn't mesh super well with everything else in the game, stuff like that. And we'll talk about it a little bit later, I guess, but also there's an element of not leaning towards things that are terribly new and current, because to me anyway, it's very important to be able to research and look at how people have responded to it and extend from those conversations, or at least be knowledgeable about those discussions. Time makes the discussions around a game more interesting in general, in the long run. We also often regurgitate a lot of what we read about games. So not everything we say are just our opinions. Sometimes we are presenting the opinions of others. And it's always hard to be able to kind of structure a conversation and a discussion in a way that really highlights that. But one of the things is that we can't know everything. So we rely on the knowledge of other people, other journalists, other gamers, opinions, public or private, and try to distill some of that. And hopefully that becomes a meaningful discussion. And with that, let's look at maybe our first meaningful discussion, difficulty in games. So in our first episode on variable difficulty, we got a very interesting question from a listener called Pella. One thing you brought up that I wish you had gone into a bit more detail was why Resident Evil 4's players felt cheated when they realized system was in place. Was it because it was too subtle and did it without their consent? Or just out of a general opinion that survival games should be ubiquitously hard? I think this is a really interesting point that players felt cheated and we didn't really go into much detail. So let's talk about why players might have felt cheated a bit more, I guess. I actually really like this question because it forced me to think about something that I just kind of like took for granted when 
we were talking about it. In my mind, when the game does something without the player knowing, and then the player finds out, in my head, it was perfectly justified for the player to go, oh, you cheated me. But why? Like, why would that elicit that response? And I, I didn't really have an immediate answer to that. Do you have, like, does something come to mind immediately for you? For me, I think it's just this sort of deep ingrained idea that when a game is presented as being skill-based, like these sorts of games are, that when you tell players that, oh, your skill might not have been the sole relevant thing in you resolving this problem, that they feel like the game isn't playing by the rules that they thought were there when they came into it. I think the term that was used, cheated, is very important here. It feels like the player was cheated out of an achievement or cheated out of an accomplishment. Being able to say that, yeah, I just did this thing, the game is this hard, and I was able to do it. There isn't a same experience between two players playing the same game in this case because of the variable difficulty. So that kind of context becomes a bit harder to establish now as well. Because you say it's not the same experience, but it's actually also bringing a certain experience closer. So one of the things that I really enjoyed about Resident Evil 4 was that I'm really bad at shooters. Yep. But... Resident Evil 4 gave me that same like tension of not having quite enough ammunition to get through everything as it would have given a more skilled player. So it gave us different experiences in like a raw mechanic sense, but it gave us a similar emotive experience. Correct. And I think that is a very good thing to happen in most cases that I, I personally feel like the single player experience emotively as in how much stress you go through, how close you come to dying, how how much tension there is. I feel like that is much more valuable than saying the game is this hard. Did you beat it? Did you beat it easily? Did you beat it, you know, by the skin of your teeth? I value the first thing a lot more. And definitely it varies on like what games like Dark Souls being easier probably doesn't do it justice. Correct. Because Dark Souls isn't about that horror side as much as Resident Evil is. Yeah. Dark Souls is not as much about tension and stress and dramatic buildup. It's more about fairness. Dark Souls has always been eminently fair. And I think that's a strong ingrained feeling about games as a whole. Fairness is the most important thing. Things have to be fair. Things can't be broken or cheap, even if they ultimately are fair in the grand context. They can feel very unfair, and that's the problem. Like, throws often get a little bit of this critique from players in fighting games. Oh, throws are cheap, throws are unfair, because if I block, I'm defending, and that's the rule. And this sort of, like, feels a bit of an extension of that, a little less frivolous and childish, perhaps, but, yeah, I feel that the expectations are set and broken. It highlights a player mentality for budding designers and, and any designer, actually. It's something to keep in mind going forward. What do you value most in your system? Is it the single player uh, dramatic buildup, the tension, that kind of stressful experience or fairness? Uh, those can be opposite. They don't have to be, but they can be at odds sometimes. And this is an example where it kind of was. And so thank you a lot for that question. That was actually a really, really good question. And brings up a really good discussion as well. In talking about difficulty, we, we talked about five games, we talked, and there were definitely more games that we could have talked about 
that deserve to at least be mentioned. So now that we have the opportunity in this addendum episode, we want to bring up Celeste specifically. Hmm. So Celeste is, by design and intent, a very difficult platformer that for narrative purposes is supposed to be difficult. It is very clear in its intent that the game's difficulty is part of the story it's telling and that it ties into a lot of the metaphors within the game because you are climbing a mountain and climbing a mountain is hard. It's a challenge in the character's life. But the author also acknowledges that the difficulty is different to different people for various reasons, such as physical ability, reflexes, things like that. And so they have a very interesting difficulty option called assist mode, where you can tune a lot of things to your own preferences to make the game appropriately frustrating or not. It was important to the designers, the makers of the game, that you were able to experience the game regardless of your skill level. However, they put in a, you know, a little text box that when you went to assist mode that said, the game is tuned to the way it is for a reason. This is here for you if you really want it, but if you can, play it the way we intended it. And I think that was really, really cool. That was, I hope that sets a precedent going forward. And I think last year we saw a lot of good moves for accessibility, like even the new Spider-Man game has in it, and they're more related to accessibility than raw difficulty per se, but even within that game, you see options to turn off quick time events and other little things that may just add unneeded difficulty. Like you can turn off puzzles, for instance, more or less. And whether or not that's good or not is a very different question, but it's definitely showing a greater acceptance to difficulty being very different for different people. So super honorable mention, Celeste. Something we did want to talk about, but we felt that we had a better list of five. It potentially fit in, and we did talk about a very small amount during the episode, but it's nice to give it just a little bit more of its own time, not nestled in between other discussions. So we'll keep this moving along. We will move on to our next topic and our and the next episode that we had done from the last season, uh, single player modes in fighting games. So single player modes in fighting games, we got a really interesting comment from a dear friend of mine that we was criticizing our initial premise, I guess, which is that we say more or less that single player modes in fighting games are for preparing people for the multiplayer, for the what we dubbed a bit more of the real game. Even though we looked explicitly at Dissidia where it's clearly single player focused and that a lot of players might look at fighting games as Primarily single-player experiences that happen to have multiplayer modes, given how some of them do have fairly elaborate single-player modes. Which is a really interesting comment and critique, because I do agree with it. On that further thought, we did take a very narrow view, despite what we initially set up with the title and the expectations that that entails, and even what we discuss. So I think it's worth talking about. I just wanted to say that looking back on the episodes that we've done, I definitely feel like this was our weakest episode. And I feel that stems from the fact that we were the most familiar with the subject matter going in. That has actually become a warning flag for us now. When we look at a list of games, we are very conscious of how familiar we are with the games because it narrows our focus. We have the specific context that we view these games in And it's sometimes very hard to break out of that bias. This is a perfect example of that. We're both competitive fighting game players and we play fighting games to play against other people. And not only do we play, but you and I also have spent time like 
organizing events and running tournaments and things like that. Spent a lot of time watching competitive events and just being part of the, the fighting game community, which is not everyone who plays fighting games. It is, in fact, not most people who play fighting games. One of the things that we've sort of found when we're yeah, making our lists is we found it very easy to find games to populate this list. And we now look at that as the biggest warning sign. If we hit the five games for our list within half an hour of discussion or so, we're like, maybe this is the wrong list to have. Historical evidence has shown that in general and on average, we will find three games extremely easily. The fourth game will come up with you know a small amount of discussion and we'll be reasonably happy with it. And then we will um and ah over a fifth title for quite a while. We were definitely spoiled for choice when looking at this one, I feel. We ummed and ahed about what to include or what to cut as opposed to what to include. Mm, and I think part of this is also just the topic we chose is much broader than it really should have been to start with. And yeah, that's another warning sign. Like if the list comes too easily, maybe we should narrow it down a bit more. I think we want to give an honorable mention to the game that actually got us to make this list originally, but didn't actually get into the episode, which is Injustice, which has a great story mode. That and Mortal Kombat 9 were the games that really pushed a lot of fighting game story modes further. While our discussion on Tekken 7 mirrors a lot of what we would have said about Injustice, you commented that the NeverRealms games, while having not the biggest competitive scenes, are some of the best-selling fighting games? Yep, especially in North America, as a fighting game made in North America for Westerners, as opposed to a lot of other big fighting games from made in Japan. NeverRealm Studios games, the Injustice series, the Mortal Kombat series, are well-received. They have an amazing sales tale, I believe is the term it calls. So, you know, when the game first releases, you get a spike. Every time you have a sale, you get a spike. And then it kind of like tails off. And NeverRealm Studios games have really good tail offs because Mortal Kombat is not as ubiquitous as Mario, but it's known by so many people. And it generates this kind of, oh, Mortal Kombat. Yeah, I know that game. That feeling doesn't go away just because the game is two or three years old or whatever like that in terms of a game like Mortal Kombat. And people, a lot of people enjoy it for the casual. I'll have my friends around for a beer on the weekend and we'll just like pop it in and play. These people are never interested, would never be interested in going to a competitive tournament. They, they, might, they might go if there was one locally that's easy to go to, but their goal is never to become the best at the game. It's literally an entertainment thing. It, it can almost be seen as a party game. Yeah, very much so. And when it goes on sale, it's like a very easy thing to, ah, oh, I'll buy this for 20 bucks and my friends will come around for drinks later tonight or something. Super easy game. And it totally deserves recognition for that because not quite a single player experience, but not a competitive experience either. And this is another case where we were very narrow in the, in the context that we viewed these games in. So yeah. Definitely worth mentioning Injustice and the Mortal Kombat games. NetherRealm Studios has done very good work on their single-player experiences in the past, and in the past six years or so have put out a series of just phenomenal games and a very consistent time schedule as well. So, And the influence they've had is really hard to deny. Like Street Fighter, its story mode was inspired by them. Um, Tekken, clearly also inspired by that. Like They changed the momentum of the genre in a huge way that often I think it's hard to say that Japanese devs are very quickly inspired by foreign studios. And I think this is definitely a pretty distinct exception to that. Representation is also super important here. There aren't very many people outside of Japan who make fighting games. And I would hate to lose 
someone like Netherrealm, who are obviously bringing different opinions, different views, different perspectives to the craft. Like, it's a bit of a shame that Lab Zero Games' Skullgirls did not do well enough for them to continue down the path of creating more fighting games, but I'm super happy that Skullgirls existed. It's a fighting game unlike any other that we have at the moment, taking its roots from Marvel 2. So yeah, Netherrealm Studios, huge kudos to them. Good stuff. And I guess with that... Uh, we shall move on to the next episode, the next uh, point of discussion for us, which was item durability. So our next episode was item durability, and there are two main points that I think we'd like to reflect on here, but our first was talking about Firefall, which is not only a dead game, but the specific version we talked about was also in its own beta. It was a super interesting experience and kind of scenario for us to put ourselves in because I personally strongly felt that there was worthwhile discussion there. I really liked the way the, the system worked. I hope that through my various ramblings, because it was quite a rambly portion of the episode, I conveyed how the mechanics of it all functioned, how it all worked into the rest of the game. And the context is super important there. But it does bring up a good point that uh, sometimes we just have games that are time limited. A lot of MMOs, you just don't have the opportunity to see what an earlier version of that would be like. You couldn't easily just hit a button and revert something to a previous state. And sometimes interesting things get lost along the way. And even if you could click those buttons to change those states, you'd lack the community or the lack of knowledge at the time. Like a lot of these games have a lot of making optimized builds. Going back to WoW before X optimized build was discovered is not really possible, even if you can bring the mechanics back to that point. You'd have hindsight, which is super powerful. Normally a positive thing, but there are weird circumstances where it can hinder an experience. And one of the issues about talking about time-limited games in the context that we're doing is that there's a certain lack of being able to verify those things, like going in and playing and experiencing that. Like if you want to, if you hear, oh, that Firefall system sounds great. I want to experience that. You can't. And unless you get some very clever server emulation going that you probably won't. So we're not really sure how to deal with that kind of situation. I'm running out of situations where I played a game that doesn't exist like that anymore, at least in anything worth talking about. So maybe it won't be an issue because literally neither of us will have that capacity anymore at some point. But Except we're also going to be talking about lots of games that, as just time moves on, games are going to be inherently more of their time because talking about Final Fantasy XV when it launched versus now is a fundamentally different discussion. Yes, there are ways to like go back to certain patch levels through that, but it's still that experience is now just different. That actually has been something that the industry has been talking about recently. Uh, let me clarify, when I say the industry, I mean games journalism has been kind of umming and eyeing over the past couple of months. A few games have quote-unquote come back from obscurity not from the dead, just a bit from obscurity, to reinvigorate themselves. No Man's Sky is a big one. This is a big year for Warframe. It's always been improving and innovating, but this year in particular saw a lot of interest drawn back to it. And so the question has become, are there capacities for journalists now to go back to a game that's already been talked about and re-review it or recontextualize it? And how do we people deal with that? There's already so many games to talk about outside of that. Can we really spend the time going back to these older games? And 
I think those are very interesting discussions to have and something to keep in mind as we go forward. They're things to keep in mind and they're not things that can really be answered, but just we need to experiment. And everyone just needs to think about the conversation we're having and how to talk about these things. And thinking of that, there's a game that we didn't talk about in this episode that was probably a really likely candidate. Didn't talk about Breath of the Wild. There were a few reasons for that. One was that it was still new enough that it was maybe a bit early to talk about it. But additionally, it's a game that people had very, very strong feelings on. And when you talk about something where people have very strong feelings on it, they're less likely to consider all the options. And I think by talking about Dead Rising instead, which has many similar systems with a lot of the similar benefits, it ends up helping people maybe take different perspectives on a discussion that they thought they had a clearer idea on. Another thing that often happens when we're picking games to talk about is we'll find a couple of games that do something close enough that we really could talk about either game. And the decision of which side of which game we fall on, well, there's a lot of criteria, but this is definitely one of them. If we can avoid something that's very recent with a lot of strong emotion attached to it, then uh, that probably is for the best as far as we're concerned. And that's another reason why Celeste was not really in that discussion before as well, probably. It's quite recent. This is winning awards at this end of year period as we speak. And well deserving of them too, which is probably a bit strong to say. <laughs> no grudge against that super well-designed game, although I haven't fully experienced it yet myself. It's a good game. So what's Breath of the Wild? Not talking about it does not imply that we think it's not a good game. We're just, yeah, these are the criteria that we have. That's just how it ends up being. And moving on to our next topic, Traversal. So our next episode after that was Traversal, and while I think it went better than our fighting episode, this was also let down by being a little bit too broad and not very tightly defined. And that was greatly, I feel, an error on our part as opposed to an error in the topic. Uh, so an error while we were recording, because we noticed after a bit that we didn't give a very good definition of what we meant by Traversal. And then we tried to fix that and it went all right, but it could have been done a lot better, more professionally and stuff like that. And this is also a topic where we had many, many options and we had to cut them away as opposed to finding things that were distinctly different being the difficult part. And I think that means that it was just far too broad, even though we had a good idea of what we meant and why that was different to talking about things like, say, platforming in Mario it made things a bit messy and sort of really emphasized to us the importance of being narrowly defined when talking about these things. We're trying to get better with that as we move on. One of the points we always try to remind ourselves to do is to give a proper definition up front if we can, or to really highlight where a game's example is the kind of mechanic we're talking about here. And with traversals specifically, we, you know, we're talking about getting from point to point in a, in a world and, and how that movement feels, as opposed to just movement in general or movement as part of combat and stuff like that. It's not just about moving across a game space. It's about moving across a game world and traveling. And this normally incidental thing that pads out game time, what can be done about that? I don't feel like we define that very well. And uh, that's just something for us to keep in mind going forward. And we got a bit of a question about a game we didn't talk about that released around the time we recorded, which was Spider-Man. 
Marvel Spider-Man, which is definitely in the topic category. After we recorded, I had the chance to play it a lot and I enjoy it quite a bit. But the problem is, is that it doesn't say anything much different to everything else. Like there's not a distinctly different thing to say other than it has good movement, infamous second son does a lot of similar things just not quite as well and maybe a bit more interestingly if not as straightforward because you're more beholden to things around you in the game world like vents and radio radio dishes and stuff like that but also i think there's the question of the medium there's a great video new frame plus that talks about spider-man's animation in a lot of detail and a lot of the things that make marvel's spider-man truly excellent at the things that people love about it they're subtle they're very visual they're terrible to just discuss visuals help immensely talking about it and some games are just not well suited to just speaking about them we've come across quite a few topics that we have decided we'd happily talk about that but doesn't work in a in an audio only format and maybe that means one day we'll make a video or two but i definitely love the audio format specifically so we'll see how that goes as we progress on and if you want it to happen let us know see what we can do but there is an interesting little debate that happened around spider-man as well like we talk about all this but spider-man is a very good game but it raises that question of innovation versus iteration how important is it to be very polished versus being new it's a good game. Exclusion from any kind of list does not take that away from it. It, it. The experience that it provides the player is really well crafted. It, all its systems feel good to play with, and that goes a long way. Just, just playing the game feels pretty good. It's not without its drawbacks. It's not. It, it suffers from a lot of tropes that potentially hold back open world games. That doesn't really change, but the payoff is that it's very flowy. It flows very well. It plays very well. It feels like a joy to be Spider-Man, jump in the air, pull people to you, kick them around and stuff like that. That's not the issue here. The issue here is one of the critiques leveled at Spider-Man, which I say in that way, like I have my fingers up in the air doing air quotes critiques, is that Spider-Man doesn't do anything new. And that kind of boggles me that that's a critique that oh, a game has to have this new mechanic that has to do this new thing. Never let anyone tell you that. A game can just be a super refined version of a game you like to play. That That's still a great game. And Spider-Man definitely falls in that category. And refinement is very valuable. But it's also, for the purpose of our show, it's not as convenient to talk about. <laughs> yep, absolutely. While Spider-Man does the things it does very well. You know, the lack of innovation means that uh, we don't get to talk about anything new that it does because it doesn't. It just does what's already been done well. And iteration is often very subtle and that's another reason why those sorts of games tend to be much more interesting for video discussions where you can much more visually isolate the nuances that are going on which are much more difficult in just a pure conversational format. And I suppose Spider-Man was a super interesting example to bring up because while it makes sense to talk about it in terms of traversal, we actually got asked about why it wasn't included specifically in our next episode, Grappling Hooks.
And under the grappling hooks, it makes a lot of sense to talk about Spider-Man again, because Spider-Man has a grappling hook in combat. He can pull enemies to him. He can eventually pull guns to him and stuff like that. It's totally the function of a grappling hook. And he can swing. Yeah, that's right. He can use a grappling hook in the form of a web to swing, as and, and that covers both traversal and grappling hooks. But the point remains that he doesn't do anything specifically super interesting or differently than a lot of the other titles we're talking about. And that's kind of where it ends. He does it well. It feels great to play the game, but other games also do it and sometimes do it in a more interesting way. And so those are the titles we went for. And that is why specifically Spider-Man wasn't included. Not because it's a bad game, just because we didn't feel it made sense. As we said before, it's also just a little bit too new at the time. But like what we have replaced it with, for both of us, like the surprise excellence was Bionic Commando. And if we put in Spider-Man instead of that, that would have been a great loss to our play experiences as a whole, but just to the discussion that we had. Bionic Commando was genuinely a surprise for both of us. And it's sort of the ideal form of the show. Like we look at a game that we know vaguely about and come away learning a lot about the thing that we didn't already know, because since we're constructing these lists, we often have a good idea of the argument we're constructing, in theory anyway. But Bionic Commando, we had a good idea of what it was going to be like and what we're going to say, but we were just surprised by how well it did what it wanted to do and how thoroughly it did it. Even though it's very messy and sloppy in lots of different ways. It is far from a perfect game. But it commits to its gimmick. To the point that it's not really a gimmick at that point. Yeah, it's just a game. That's just a game now. Everything revolves around your hand that is a grappling hook. And it's so great. It feels... And see, this is the thing. It doesn't feel super great to play it because there are frustrating parts of it where it doesn't quite do what you expect it to do. But it feels like there's so much potential in there. And that's just very surprising. If you haven't listened to it yet, go and listen to that section. It's one of the sections that I'm most happy with in this entire season six episodes of recording this podcast so far i think it's the first time i believe that we talked about like every reasonable aspect of a game and basically ended up covering 90 percent of what the game was it just fits so well it was well done and that's not to say that the other games in this episode weren't also really good bionic commando was going up against games like devil may cry 4 which is one of your favorites. Yeah, which is one of my favorite games, Karam, um, Umehara Kawase, which is one of your favorites. And then Worms, which is everyone's favorite. Worms, which is just this series, that this franchise that will not die. And, and Ocarina of Time, which is the internet's favorite. Yeah, so this was a really fun list of games to work through, to talk through. And the fact that Bionic Commando comes up as having the most impact, possibly because we didn't expect it to. So, you know, there's a lot of expectation that's happening here and we just kind of went, oh, Bionic Commando, we should talk about it because it probably does the 3D swinging, slinging about the best as that uh, we're going to find. But turns out it, it did. Was, yeah, turns out it did. And really happy for that to happen. And thinking of happy, I think an episode that doesn't really fit our format very well, but was definitely... One that we were looking forward to for a long time was Final Fantasy VIII. And so where the Grappling Hooks episode was one of my favorite 
feeling episodes. It just felt right as we were talking about all the games and all the stuff associated with it. Final Fantasy VIII episode was the episode I had the most fun recording because it's just a game that's so near and dear to both of our hearts. It's something that is ingrained in a lot of the way that, at least for me, how I view RPGs. I, I view it in the lens of how does that compare to Final Fantasy VIII first? Yeah, FF8 taught me a lot from a young age about what I expect from RPGs. And even though I played some beforehand, it's just been a huge influence on how I look at all sorts of different bits of media. It's not the best by any means at a lot of things, but it's always been interesting to me. Its flaws really make it worth talking about. Yeah, quality is not necessarily... The metric we use to gauge our discussions, it is how interesting is it? What can you actually say about it? Because a Dragon Quest game, as great as they are, and as much as I love the series, I couldn't have this discussion about any of them, really. Mm, that's fair. I haven't played a Dragon Quest, so that's very interesting to know. At some point, maybe. There's lots of interesting things about them, but that's a different discussion. It was also really heartening because we put out a call to people who are our listeners, our dear listeners. Thank you very much for responding. And people responded with just things that they liked about the game. That's right. And we got a particularly great blog post from Jude McCulley shortly after we recorded, but before we released the episode. So thank you for giving us that great post. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. So if you'd like to read about her response, that'd be lovely. But we'd like to talk about a really interesting point she brought up about customization in the game and how it changed the relationship between the characters. We mentioned in the episode of 8 itself that one of the downfalls of the game is that a lot of the characters, they don't, they're not exactly fully fleshed out characters. They have a bit of a two-dimensional personality at best. A lot of them are really one-note characters. And uh, this is this is very much related to that. So looking at it in the context of the series up to that point, you've sort of gone from Final Fantasy IV, where you've got everyone being explicitly hard-coded, you cannot really change much about them. Six characters have a distinct attribute, but they often get overruled by power of magic later on. Five, which is in between four and six usually. Everyone is a mostly blank slate with some minor statistical differences. But once you get into seven, that's when you sort of go that extra step and everyone is very, very similar again. Yes, there are stat differences, but seven and eight and five and a little bit of six, everyone just meshes in a little bit more so, but eight the most, I feel, because there's even less to differentiate between the characters. Seven began the journey of removing the concept of classes from Final Fantasy. Eight was the furthest they've gone in that direction, I think. Yeah, I would say that eight is the furthest they've gone because even though five doesn't have any characters, characters don't have any distinct unique traits in five, the classes feel distinct and you create an identity for each character as they learn their own individual classes. Whereas in seven and eight, literally all your abilities are little items you equip that you can change instantly. Want to change your mage and your fighter? You can just literally swap those builds around. A lot of the class personality from the characters in Final Fantasy VIII actually comes from their limit breaks. And so many people have responded to us and said they didn't even use limit breaks very much going through the game. So it was so easy to just skip over that customization that that specific nuance of the character so easily in the in the course of the game and like as, as kind of evidence to how little differentiation between characters are the only thing that you can equip in terms of gear and equipment was your weapon and even then the weapons were more or less just extremely linear extremely linear some of them had limit breaks that would unlock when you got them but usually if you got the later weapon instead you got all of them and this is kind of something that i want to harp on just a bit because 
gear customization, what your characters wear. That's, you know, in a lot of other RPGs, they have small-ish things like, oh, this is a female-only piece of armor. This is a male-only piece of armor. Or this can only be used by your more fighty characters or your more magey characters. And you don't even have that in 8. And you shouldn't have that in 8. That would uh, disrupt the balance of the way all the other equips have work for 8, all the junctioning and all that. It would completely disrupt it. But yeah, you just don't have that customization. You don't have that differentiation between characters. And I think that's something that later on in games like 10, they would balance that more. So in 10, eventually everyone can become the same given immense amounts of grinding, but everyone sort of has a different starting point on this elaborate board game system. And as you progress through it, they learn new abilities. And eventually a character can delve into another character section, but it feels like you are delving into another character section. And it feels like your character is subclassing as opposed to stealing or or just being another class. So even though they all can change and become whatever they want, you end up creating distinct identities for them based on the time you spent to start diverging from those points. And particularly in the American version of Final Fantasy X that didn't have the advanced sphere grid, where it takes even longer to start branching into those other paths. So super enjoyed our discussion on eight. Thank you very much for convincing me to do this podcast with you, if only just for that episode. I'm looking forward to doing a lot more. Oh, why thank you. I'm really thankful again to Jude for giving her thoughts in our long form blog, well, mid form blog, blog post. And uh, prompting more discussion on Final Fantasy VIII because I live for that kind of stuff. And that really covers a lot of what we wanted to talk about in terms of the main topics that we covered in the last season. In six episodes, only six episodes, but it's been a very, very fun ride to get to six episodes for the first season. And since this is the New Year End Year podcast, we will talk about our personal development with a game from the past year. So on the topic and note of, you know, something personal in terms of what we have learned from games, what we have developed in terms of taste for games this year, we're going to go over one from each of us and I'll start. I am traditionally, and I identify as a Capcom fighting game player. And what this means to those, (laughs) what this means to those uninitiated is that I really like 2D fighters in the vein of Street Fighter. I really like the Marvel versus Capcom series. I, there's just something about those games that I understand. And I have had a bit of an aversion to the 3D fighters traditionally known as Tekken, Soul Calibur, those kinds of series. And I'm much the same. While I don't like Capcom's work specifically, I'm much more comfortable with the 2D fighters and that while I've played a lot of 3D fighters, I've sort of always pushed them aside as things I don't really want to deal with that much. And that's very fair. We all have tastes, and it's fine to have these tastes. But in the interest of personal development and the fact that I was in a scene that was growing and the scene really gravitated towards 3D fighters, I took it upon myself to actually try to learn a 3D fighter this year. And I picked up Tekken, and I learned one character in Tekken, and that was decent fun. I found a button I really liked. It's uh, I play Asuka, and I like to hit um, back and forth a lot, and that causes a crumple on counter hits. Very satisfying. And then when Soul Calibur VI came out, it's a big deal. It, uh, it was the revival of a franchise. It was a return to one of its most successful en- uh, entries in terms of the mechanics and feel of it, Soul Calibur II, that is. So I put a bit of time into Soul Calibur VI as well. 
And that's been my major kind of personal growth related to games this year, I feel, in terms of broadening my horizons, trying to figure out 3D fighters and what they are. And what I figured out is that a bit of an understanding of underlying games, basically most of your games rely on a an object hitting another object. And you detect this via hitboxes, they're called. But in a lot of fighting games, you have spheres because that's just nicer. It, it just, a lot of things are rounded. And so the hit spheres or hitboxes in 3D fighters, I dislike. It's loose and it doesn't always obey its own internal mechanics because it's better for the game to go, oh, does the hit sphere collide as opposed to they did this move, it's immune to this. And that's been my biggest personal development. Learning 3D fighters and learning why I don't like them because I could never really quantify it in the first place. Now I know why. A lot of hits don't line up perfectly with the model. And I, I just like that. I like it when it's hidden in hit sparks. 2D fighters do this a lot. 2D fighters do not have perfect hitboxes most of the time. There are some games that do a lot to try and make the model line up, or, or the sprite in some cases line up precisely with the hitbox. Most of them do not, but they hide it much better with hit sparks. And uh, that's something that I dislike from 3D fighters. So learning about myself and why. And for me, one of my big missions was um, up till now, I've never really understood free-to-play games as in while I know they exist and that they are popular and that they're manipulative in various ways, I've never really played them enough to sort of go, oh, I see why this model works and what works about it. And so my mission this year was to become, if not positive about free-to-play games, but at least be able to walk away and go, there are good things about this model that work well for it. And so there are two main free-to-play games that I picked up this year, one of which is Grand Blue, which is, it's one of the more popular gacha games in Japan, gacha games being games where you acquire characters and items through randomized loot boxes, more or less, and Warframe. And Warframe, I think those discussions have been had. It's generally considered to be a nice, fair multiplayer of nice, fair multiplayer co-op shooter, looter shooter. But I want to talk more about Grand Blue because Grand Blue on the surface is fairly scammy. Like it's quite happy to take um, hundreds of dollars. It's a bit nice for a gacha game in that even when you spend nine hundred dollars, it gives you an item of your choice, which is a lot of money to spend on getting an item of your choice. But what I found fascinating when playing through these games in the way that you're supposed to just sort of casually using the free items that you get from the game, investing a little bit of money here and there is that the rhythm of play that free-to-play games encourage can be very relaxing. And there's lots of techniques they use that encourage habitual play, which on one hand, that's concerning because it's trying to create that habitual play that results in you spending more money than you may necessarily want. But it also is kind of nice just having that routine in your day that like you wake up, you on the bus to work, tinker with your little gacha game on the bus. It's very carefully designed for its commuting, for your commutes, so that it has many neat, easy breakpoints and things like that. This year has been about just experimenting with different monetization models that I wasn't familiar with and learning that while there is definitely things I don't like about the model, there's a lot of good stuff in these games that I had previously just dismissed out of hand. Because it's very dangerous to dismiss anything just out of hand without at least having a bit of an investigation about it, if not looking at it directly yourself. Especially if it's popular. And free-to-play is not going away anytime soon. Gacha games are not going away anytime soon. And if we want to have good conversations about game design, we can't just be ignoring an entire monetization method. Like, it's so easy to dismiss out of hand 
Candy Crush. Like, oh, it's it's predatory and it, it does this and it's just... And it is predatory and it does do some terrible things. But there is a lot to learn from Candy Crush as well. Absolutely. Most, but most people interested in design will know the term Skinner Box. That's something that... Can't, I, I don't think I learned it from Candy Crush, but it was one of the games that like really highlighted what Skinner Box mechanics and, and design was like and how absolutely terrifying it can be when just used to exploit people. Yeah, and it's definitely, when playing Grand Blue, it's very unnerving a little bit to like watch, oh, I see how this game is trying to incentivize me to do X, Y, and Z. And I spent more money than a full retail game on the game over the course of this last year, which kind of surprises me. I enjoy my time immensely with it, but it's still a bit surprising. I didn't think that I would. And so yeah, those are our personal developments that didn't fit in with what we talked about in the show over the last six months or so. And we hope that we'll continue learning new things as we progress onwards and that you enjoy the show, that if you have any thoughts or questions, that you feel free to be asking us those at any point. And happy season two. Happy season two. Here's here's to more good stuff. And you can contact us via Twitter. Um, you can email us and you'll find all those details in the show notes. Thank you for listening. <laughs>